Welcome to the latest episode of the Bureau 42 Greatest Science Fiction Films Tournament. I'm your regular host, Blaine Dowler, and with me is regular guest host, Alexander Case. Hello. So this time around, we're going to be talking about Alien, directed by Ridley Scott and released in 1979. Before we go any further, if you have not seen this movie, do it. It is a very good movie, and the less you know about it going in, the better it works. We are going to be spoiling some things, including some pretty major things. So if you haven't seen it yet, bail out now, because it just won't be the same experience. Okay. If you're still listening now and complain about spoilers, well, it's your own fault. You're still here. You've had plenty of warning. (laughs) All right. So, let's get started. So, my experience with Alien was a little bit atypical. That's part of the reason I gave that warning. I actually saw the sequel first, partly because I was two years old when this original came out in theaters. So how about you, Alex? Did you see them in release order or in some other order? I saw them in release order. However, my experience with Alien was also kind of atypical because when I was a kid, my parents wouldn't let me watch R-rated movies. However, I had pretty much free reign of the library, which means I read Alan Dean Foster's novelization of the movie before I ever saw it. So I'd kind of, the cover had a picture of the alien, I think, on the back. Um, I could be wrong. Um, but the book version contained a lot of material which was not in the theatrical cut, but was later re-added back in the director's cut, which came out in 2003 for the Alien Quadrilogy DVD release. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's actually fairly common for novelizations to have material that's not in the the final film, sometimes because they're simply working from an earlier draft of the script before edits are made, sometimes because the script alone isn't complete. And when we get to some of the other movies in the tournaments, I'll actually talk about, uh, there's a couple of cases where some massive plot holes were fixed in the novelizations that did not exist in the scripts. But for Alien itself, one of the things that's impressed me about the whole quadrilogy is that, especially for the first three, it reinvents itself. This is a movie that shows, or this series shows definitively, in my opinion, that science fiction is too broad to be considered a genre. We've already made the same comment for anime. If we look at the first three Alien films, this first one we're talking about today is it is in a science fiction setting, but it's almost straight-up horror. The second film is action, with some horror elements, but it is primarily an action film. The third one is a prison drama to the point where you could take the alien out of the movie and still have a movie. And then the fourth goes back to more of the action trappings of the second. I definitely agree. Although with Alien 3, it's almost a prison horror movie as much as it is a prison drama. Um, although, if you take the alien out, it, the horror becomes more about man's inhumanity to man than um, the unknown, than fear of the unknown. Yeah. But we'll get into that later. We'll do eventually do podcasts for all four films in the quadrilogy. So, that's just a quick rundown. This one is straight up horror. And one of the things I love about it is how quickly that mood is established. 
in those first few scenes, we get that camera slowly panning and tilting and going through the interior of the Nostromo, which is the massive vessel that they're in. And we get a lot of feel for this. It's the kind of thing that you don't necessarily see in the days of CGI. The Nostromo model was incredibly intricate and detailed. This was a flying city. And it's one of the few cases where you have a spaceship in space with no aerodynamics of any kind because they're really unnecessary for a spacecraft in space. Mm-hmm. Right. This is, it really feels like a flying city with incredibly intricate work in the models. And we see this for several minutes before any crew members are even awake. This is a sleeper ship. And we get the camera panning through the cockpit. We get it panning through the kitchen area. It actually establishes all of the major locations in the first few seconds with these slow panning shots backed by that Jerry Goldsmith score. And I also say that actually the film kind of gives, what do I call it, a, a um, deliberate jump scare? It kind of gives its first jump scare in these first few minutes of establishing shots when the computer kicks in. Because up to this point, the sound is very quiet, aside from the score, which is soft and kind of mellow and soothing. And then it goes completely quiet, and then the computer kicks in, almost completely out of the like, completely out of the blue, and with very sharp sound. So it, if you're expecting something at the same level of the ambient volume we've had thus far, it'll it, it, it'll kind of make you jump a little bit. Mm-hmm. It does, and it also establishes the importance of the subroutine. This is what kicks in and wakes up the crew. And when we get the introduction to them, that's back in that sleeper cabinet. And we go from there to a scene which apparently had a lot of improvised dialogue. They were sort of told, this is the direction we want to go. Now, one of the things that it's hard to capture, because I wasn't there in 1979 when this came out, is that this cast, which is filled with recognizable people today, had one star in 1979, and that was John Hurt. He was the only member of the cast that was expected to be a household name. People were not expected to know Tom Skerritt, or Ian Holm, or Sigourney Weaver, or Veronica Cartwright, or Harry Dean Stanton. Like, none of these people were meant to be known except John Hurt, which was quite deliberate in terms of the structure of the film. Yeah, I would say that Yafit Koto is probably the other person who might be considered something of a recognizable actor, as uh, Alien came out about six years after Live and Let Die came out. So people would probably recognize him as, oh, hey, it's that guy from the Bond movie. But looking at his um, these films he'd been in, he hadn't been in that much major work since then. Yeah, and that's true for a lot of them. These were all talented working actors. But with the exception of John Hurt, they were all at the, hey, it's that guy level, rather than the, oh, it's insert name here level. And that really plays out in these first few minutes. There's also a surprising amount of foreshadowing for a straight-up horror movie. I frankly don't like a lot of horror, because especially starting in about the mid-80s, they became shock films rather than horror films, and they start to fall apart if you think about it. This is one of the horror films that stands up very well under scrutiny. There was a lot that was planned here and a lot that was laid out in advance, and you can see it very clearly. 
especially when they find out they're not going home yet. They're being detoured. They found a signal, and they have to go investigate. And that's where things really start rolling. This is where you get H.R. Giger's massive influence in the art designs, when you find the alien ship. Actually, even before that... Go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, Even before that, um, one of the things I picked up from watching the documentaries on the um, DVD and the Blu-ray releases, which... If you haven't picked those, if you enjoy these movies, I'd definitely recommend picking those up. Is Giger was originally brought on basically just to design the the stages of the alien life cycle. Um, but as kind of time went on, uh, Ridley Scott and other members of the production design team brought him in more to um, design other aspects uh, up up to and including the landscape of the planet. And not just the exteriors and interiors of the alien ship. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we do see some of that. That this really does feel like an alien world. We're we're not dealing with Doctor Who territory where oh, it's another rock quarry, <laughs> <laughs> or Star Trek territory of oh yes, it's that rock formation again. Yeah, the Vasquez rocks were very well represented in Star Trek. <laughs> This is no. Yeah, this is something we'd never really seen before, and probably the closest we'd come to seeing that again in a mainstream science fiction work, particularly in television, would be with Next Generation with their kind of variations on the Planet Hell set. Yeah, although I mean, a lot of Next Gen, you can tell what they were drawing from things. In fact, Yafet Koto was one of the the shortlist of the last three actors that they were picking from to play Jean Luc Picard. So, he was almost Picard in Next Generation. It would certainly be interesting to have the, um, to have, basically be the first major African American captain, as far as like, in a, in a Star Trek television series we see. He'd be the second, uh, actually third overall behind, uh, Captain Terrell in Star Trek II and the captain of the Saratoga in Star Trek IV. But I think he could have done, I think he would have been a really good uh, captain. Yeah, if he could have done it, I think we just would have had a very different series. Oh, absolutely. His, his Picard would not have been Jean, or not have been Patrick Stewart's Picard. I agree. In fact, he, in fact, probably Riker would not have been in the same role in terms of Picard being the one up on the ship and Riker being the one who punches aliens in the face. Um, I think Kodos would, might have actually been closer to Avery Brooks's um, uh, Cisco. Yeah, to yeah. Cisco. Yeah, but again, we'll get to the Star Trek podcasts when we do our television tournament. Indeed, because I'm pretty sure they're going to rank in there somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. At, at any rate, if you have no idea what's going on, and it was very easy not to know what's going on, if you look at the trailers for this for the original theatrical release. They give very little information about what was coming up in this film. So they get into this alien ship. They find a truly alien alien. This is not a human in makeup. This thing is massive. It's kind of humanoid, but the scale is nowhere close to human scale. Again, we're setting up this is a diverse universe. Doesn't seem to be a lot of life in it. You could tell the idea that it's not a human signal 
it occurs to them and it's not completely strange, but it is uncomfortable and unusual. We establish that on the ship before we get here. When they're here, John Hurt goes down and he finds a room filled with things that look like eggs and one of them latches onto its face. I don't do it, man. And Sorry. One thing I do want to mention here, a couple things about the effect stuff. Um, first, the shot uh, of the space jockey, which which is our, our first look at an alien life form in this universe, is kind of impressive because it is a very, very massive set for just basically a one-off scene. And it's kind of it's something that Ridley Scott had to really fight for, for the studio to get that, because what he, the one thing he didn't want is he didn't want this movie to come across in any way like a Roger Corman shot in five rooms of a warehouse movie. Um, mm-hmm. And this is kind of the shot which sets up, we are a big movie, we are a movie to be taken seriously. And it pays off. And the consequently, all the work that H.R. Giger did into, into designing this set, from not just the space jockey at his console, but also stuff like the wall behind him, behind the space jockey, the massive wall that's shaped like a, like a bunch of rib cages side by side, looks... Mm-hmm gorgeous in a horrifying fashion. Um, yeah, Giger did incorporate a lot of body parts into his designs, including the exterior airlocks, but we'll say no more about that in a family-friendly yeah. podcast. The other interesting little effects thing is when um, when Kane is attacked by the facehugger, um, one of the things picked up with the, with the frame-by-frame is that's actually three very quick-together quickly edited together effect shots, three different ones. So we have the shot where Gaines Eye View looking over the egg, um, th- and we see the inside. Then there's a brief fleet flash of something twirling in front of the, in front of the screen, and that is, for the commentary, it's sheep's intestine with basically air jets being blown up it to make it wiggle around, like something uncoiling. We then get, that's like for like a, a half a second or a quarter of a second. We then get the face hugger basically being thrown directly at the camera. And mm-hmm. that's like another couple seconds, like a couple seconds, like a couple, like a fraction of a second. And then we have a stationary shot of the face hugger completely open with the ovipositor being shot up at the camera also by an air jet. And I think that's kind of similarly redressed, um, Sheep uh, sheep intestine. Um, yeah, uh, Ridley Scott actually apparently spent a lot of time at getting stuff from an abattoir for some of the effects in this film. So it, lots of if there's things in here that look like they're organic, they are um, in many of these cases. Yes, very much so, and they did. And as you said, there's quick shots. These are very very quick shots. That attack is frantic, and that really helps you put in the sense of panic that Kane would have, especially since a lot of the shots that we've had so far are very long shots. So it has been not slow, but very methodical pace and very smooth. This is the first time we really get a high-speed action sequence. The closest thing we had to that was when you know Ian Holm does sort of calisthenics when no one's there and moves incredibly quickly for a person. But even that was very brief and very fleeting. And if you're not paying attention, you may not even notice that there's anything unusual going on in that sequence. 
this is the first time when we really get a sense of speed and a sense of panic. So when you get Tom Skerritt and Veronica Cartwright hauling this guy back to the ship and saying, you know, let us in, we need to get in here, and Ripley arguing about quarantine procedures, it's very effective. We get why they're panicked and frantic about this guy, but it's also nice to see, unlike some of the extensions to this franchise, these characters are not really idiots. Like on the one hand, you've got the people who are concerned about the guy who was attacked under their watch. On the other hand, you've got Ripley going, no, we're if we let you in now, we're endangering the entire ship. You're not coming in. And it's not until Ian Holmes' character opens the airlock and lets them in against Ripley's orders that things get moving. And even that, as we later learn, there are reasons he made decisions to break quarantine. You know, we get very well established. So they, this alien creature was well designed. I mean, we get the face hugger, which is, as you said, Giger designed a complete life cycle for this alien. So we know this thing is attached to his face. We don't know what it's doing or why it's there. All we know is this thing is genetically designed so you cannot remove it. It latches on so tightly they can't just pull it off without ripping Kane's face off. When they try to cut it free, they find out that the blood is very acidic and actually goes through several decks of the ship. When you've got a tin can in space, you don't want to risk anything that's going to punch holes in the sides of the ship. Yeah. And this, in the dialogue here, in addition to a few scenes before this, um, particularly with Parker and Brett, also re- does a really, these are the characters played by Yafit Koto and Harry Dean Stanton, does a really good job of setting up the other thing that this film is really known for, which is the sort of space truckers take on things. Um, this is kind of a, a setup that um, the screenwriter Dan O'Bannon had tried once before in his first film, Dark Star, which was a comedy, but that film didn't do well, and he's kind of decided decided to basically, when he wrote this, play a sequence from that movie, which involves an alien um, loose on the ship, a little, actually not a little, a lot more straight, but still keeping up, keeping on with the space truckers thing, and. Yavit Koto and Harry Dean Stanton are probably the most blue collary and more, I guess, space truckers of all of all of the cast. Yeah, it's clear everyone's hired on individual contracts, constantly debating the bonus situation. We get a pretty fair establishment of what this future is like, and it's not the sort of idealist communism of Star Trek. I know people say it's not really communist in Star Trek. You go back and look at the Federation, they've done away with currency and everyone works for the greater good. That's the idealized communism. That's not communism we've seen anywhere on Earth so far. But, as you're saying, we get, we know why they're there. These guys are there for the paycheck. These are not altruistic. They're not out there to make the galaxy a better or safer place. They're there to get the cargo from A to B and pick up the check at the end. Mm-hmm. And that's true for pretty much the entire crew. Yeah. So, which also helps in this, because when you've got a good horror film, you've got to be able to identify with the potential victims. They've got to seem like regular, normal people in these situations. And this does that well. I mean, you see some bad decisions, but completely relatable decisions. You understand why people would make those decisions. And even watching it afterwards, everyone can say, these guys made bad decisions, but they won't agree on which member 
of the crew made the bad decision that the crew members were arguing about. Definitely. But this is where the movie really gets going. We get the face hugger on Kane. They can't get to him. And at some point, this thing just lets go and then pretty much dies of natural causes. Kane wakes up, seems okay, and then we get what is probably the single most famous scene of the movie. So if you're still listening after all those spoiler warnings, stop now. Because this works, and it works very well. Largely because only two members of the cast knew what was coming when they shot it. So the crew broke for lunch, and when they came back from lunch, John Hurt was already lying back down on the table, and Yafet Koto, who was going to be standing right there holding his shoulders, knew it was coming. Nobody else did. So when you see Veronica Cartwright's reaction, that's legitimately Veronica Cartwright's, or Veronica Cartwright's reaction to what happens here. Indeed. The only warning that, aside from Yafet Koto and um, John Hurt, the only warning any of the cast members had was one of the... Um, one of the uh, special effects technicians, I think Veronica Cartwright now, oh, you may get a little blood on you. Which, considering this is shot in Britain, I'm not sure if this is like British dry wit or deliberate understatement or just kind of taking a rib at her because she gets a lot up, gets more than a little blood on her. Oh yeah, she gets drenched. Yeah. And we get the famous chestburster, and this thing, when I say famous, I mean, it's been spoofed in Spaceballs. It's been spoofed, I don't know how many times. Yeah, actually, bears mentioning in Spaceballs, they brought John Hurt back for a brief cameo appearance to get killed by the chestburster again. In fact, he actually says, yeah. oh no, not again, before he gets killed. Yeah, although that chestburster was a little bit different being Michigan J. Frog. Yeah. But. Yeah, so this thing comes out, and again, it's the attention to detail. We can see this thing appears to be the larval stage. So the color is going to change, but the metal teeth are already in place. So we get this very yellowy, pale creature, and as it's turning its head around with no visible eyes, it has steel fangs, plainly visible. So we, we get a feeling that even this tiny little newborn is a dangerous creature. Right off that smile. Mm-hmm. Again, the this is a very visually told story. You could watch this film on mute and have no problems understanding what was going on. That's one of Ridley Scott's strengths as a director is using the visual aspect of the medium to tell his story. Which is also largely why he allows his cast to do so much ad-libbing and improvising in the specific dialogue in a lot of the incidental scenes because that's not where the core of the storytelling is taking place. But this also leads to one of the plot points that really gets to me. The next five minutes or so of this film are the ones that bother me the most. So John Hurt is dead. Everyone's stunned by this. The ship is already in motion. They are in space. They've taken off. So they've got this thing loose in the ship, and they need to contain it. And there's actually two aspects here. That, that bug me. The main one is that one of the jump scares 
is jump scaring us with something that's totally unrelated. We have a ship that puts seven people in cryostasis. We see those cryotubes open. We see these seven people come out. Who the heck's been feeding the cat that's there for the sake of the jump scare? This thing was not in one of the cryotubes. Why is this cat even on the ship? So you just it comes out of nowhere just to give you that sort of false blind, and that bothers me. The other thing that bothers me is, as far as we can tell, these seven people in that cat are the only organic material on the ship. What the heck did this thing eat to get so big so quickly? Agreed. The cat, sorry, the cat is the one thing where I didn't really have much of a problem with it. Um, I assumed that um, it would have been nice if we'd seen the cat earlier as far as coming out of stasis. But the thought I had is possibly, depending on food supplies or that sort of thing on the ship, to prevent rodents or something. Um, presum- presumably, mankind learned something from all the ecosystems that have been messed that we messed up on Earth for with accidentally spreading rabbits and rats and various other things over the course of exploring our world. Presumably, they want to avoid similar problems in other worlds. Yeah. It's a nice thought, but then if you're going to have rats or some other infestation, that means you're carrying edible, perishable cargo, which is inconsistent with having a sleeper ship. That's also true. Although it's apparently, a, it's for a sleeper ship, it's not a, it's a fairly quick sleeper ship. Um, we get a time estimate um, before they go back into, um, before can, the um, facehugger gets off Kane from Ronnie Cartwright's character, Lambert, who's the ship's navigator, saying that they are about ten months out from Earth, and they also established before that that they're about halfway there. So those guys said that they've diverted, so they've lost a little, so they've gained a little extra time on their journey. So rough estimate, I'd say, about 20, 18, 20 months trip from wherever they were, wherever they kept their cargo hauler. Yeah, and that is to Earth. We also find out later that the the slower shuttle itself can basically drift across the frontier and get into established space in about six weeks. So there is some time, but it's still just... If you have the cat that's existing on something, you have perishable cargo, and then why do you have a sleeper ship? It's just... That part doesn't add up. Some of it, to me, is just... They have the cat for the sake of having the cat to get the jump scare now and to, you know, set up a few things for the tail end of the film. Yeah. Cause this, I don't know, maybe it's because I'm just not a cat person in general, but I think that it would have been a stronger film if they just lost the cat entirely. Mm. But... Yeah, as we're going through and as they're hunting for this thing, that's when we get the first full look at the alien. And even then, it's not a great look. They are definitely taking off the classic lessons learned by the Hammer and Universal Studios in the 1930s and 40s, including things like the original Cat People or the original House on Haunted Hill, where a lot of times things are scarier if you don't see them and let the audience picture what is there. Agreed. Another, uh, it's also worth mentioning another film that influenced Ridley Scott on this, which actually I watched because of listening to the commentary um, back when the uh, Quadrilogy release came out, was the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre um, film directed by Toby Hooper. In that film, unlike, I believe, the remake, uh, 
pretty much all of the graph, all of the things that would be considered, all, all the, the graphic deaths or what have you, tend to happen off screen. Um, it's left to the audience's imagination what Leatherface is doing to the people. We just know it's horrible because we horrible and horrifying because we can hear it, and we may see remains afterwards, but otherwise we don't see that. And so consequently, outside of the chestburster scene, um, the gore is, I mean, it's the, the blood and gore is there, but it's not, it's not heavy and it's not in your face. It is, and that's because originally they weren't intending these people to have gory deaths, as you'll learn. I know it's in the deleted scenes. I'm not sure if it's in the director's cut. That's not one I have access to. But originally, uh, during the final escape sequence, Ripley was supposed to find these surviving characters attached to the walls. Yeah, that scene. And these other surviving characters. That scene is in the director's cut. Uh, there's one other yeah. notable scene earlier. Um, well, not really notable. It's when they're checking out the facehugger on Kane. There's a scene that was cut of Lambert confronting Ripley who's with um, Parker and Brett outside the med bay, and Lambert, and Ryder Cartwright clobbers uh, Ripley one um, pretty good. This is around like the third take, and um, Sigourney Weaver, who this is her uh, first feature film, um, she she basically moved out of the way of the first few hits, so first few attempts to do the hit, so it didn't look good. So... Um, Cartwright basically kind of had to kind of trick her into not moving, but instead it led to Weaver moving into the hit. Um, so yeah, she got slapped pretty good, and it, it, it looks it on the uh, in in the scene. Mm-hmm. It did, and that's something we get very naturalistic performances. A lot of these people, the actors are creating their characters for the large part. They have roles on the ship. But aside from the dynamics between Tom Skerritt's character, Sigourney Weaver's character, and Ian Holmes' character, a lot of them are not that well-defined. I mean, we know there's some tension, but that's about it. And the finer details in some cases are left up to the actors and actresses for how to play it out. Which, again, it helps them feel normal and realistic, and it helps the audience, especially with the death of the only famous name, John Hurt was the only one that people would know by name. He is the first to go, and they kept that a secret. That's part of the reason they showed so little in the trailers. People were coming in expecting John Hurt to be the star and the hero start to finish, and he's gone. Like, half an hour into this two-hour movie, he is very much dead. That's part of the reason you get that big shock and why they wanted to surprise people. They were drilling home, nobody is safe here. So when he's done... The early audiences faced with a bunch of unknowns have been going, who's next? Is anyone going to make it? And that is a very strong feel, especially since in the first draft of the movie, nobody made it. Every human died in the original draft. So we do get that strong sense of tension and that strong sense of horror, and you really don't know who's coming next. And the rest of the film... There are action elements, but it's primarily a game of cat and mouse in a very restricted maze. 
we learn that this alien is a very good predator. We learn that Ian Holmes' character let it in because he's not human. He is an android who's been programmed by the company they work for to bring this thing back to the science division. They're presuming it's for the weapons lab, and that's later confirmed in the sequels. At this point, it's just a presumption. But this thing is the perfect natural predator, and the company wants it. They were diverted here on purpose to get this thing. Which is one of the earlier anti-corporate messages in films. The strong anti-corporate tendencies in a lot of productions, they didn't really start coming to the 90s. With your films like Total Recall. Ridley Scott was early on in that with both Alien and Blade Runner. Yeah. Um, and this scene here also, apparently, like, from what I've seen, uh, from the uh, behind the scenes stuff, this scene, apparently the other really, the scene with uh, Ripley confronting Ash and ultimately Ash getting his android head knocked off by Yafit Kodo, apparently the other really big shock of the movie with audiences. Um, if the chestburster didn't get him, then the decapitation of Ash did. Oh yeah, Sigourney Weaver kicks serious Ash in this movie. Yeah, well, kind of. Ash kind of gets the better of her here. Um, it, it's Yapit Koto shows up, and even then he doesn't do much uh, until he gets, a, gets his hand on a fire extinguisher and um, knocks Ash's head off with that. Um, but she did. Everyone kind of. But it, it, it takes a team effort to bring down to bring down Ash. It, it makes him almost as much of a physical threat in this just this one scene as the alien on its own. Yeah. Now you know the alien is the, the major threat, but that doesn't downplay Ash. You know he's a serious contender. And again, because these feel like normal people, it's not like your John McClane's. It's not your James Bonds. There is a major sense of danger. At this point, you're still not sure who's going to make it out. You're kind of leaning towards Ripley, just because she has been, generally speaking, getting more screen time than the rest, at least since the chest-bursting scene, and also because of her being the one to take the stand to say, no, we've we've got quarantine procedures. Just the fact that early on she was the one trying to prevent this makes the audience a little more sympathetic, because she's the one that was on the ball and recognized the potential dangers. But yeah, even at this point, so at this point, Tom Skerritt is done. He's gone. John Hurt is gone. Harry Dean Stanton's gone. They effectively take out Ash in this now that they realize he's an android who was diverted and given orders that all other concerns are secondary. The the crew is expendable, even though what we see on that screen doesn't quite match his dialogue. I suspect that they redid the screen on the Nostromo just to make that point a little more obvious before she has that conversation with him. Because Ash just says, all other priorities rescinded. And it doesn't explicitly state crew is expendable. She asks, what about the crew? He says, well, you heard it. All other priorities rescinded. So that's his interpretation. And you don't know. If it had just been the order, you wouldn't know, was the machine taking it a little too literally? And was there that the reason that the crew is expendable was because of Ash's interpretation? Like I said, they seem to have rewritten the orders to make it clear the company says... To hell with the crew, we want this thing. 
One interesting little tidbit about the um, Ashes exposition about why the corporation diverted them. Um, there is one scene. Um, this scene is actually the second take. They had to redo it because of the sort of the milk and android innards effects didn't quite work here the first time they did it. Um, when they reshot the scene, they also ch- tweaked the dialogue. Uh, in the cast commentary um, on the Blu-ray release and the DVD release for the extended edition, they mention that in the original version of the scene, um, Ash asked if anyone tried communicating with the alien, and that bit was removed from the uh, retake, with the then focus on the alien being a um, an unstoppable, basically an unstoppable predator, um, which cannot be reasoned with, or negotiated with, or doesn't really have any sense of morals. It is totally alien in every possible aspect. Mm-hmm. Which is good, and that's that's the only I'm glad they dropped, especially compared to the original ending, where you know this alien slaughtered all the humans and then made a log entry mimicking the voice of the last survivor. It was basically strongly implied this thing is just going to fly all the way back to Earth and keep going. But as soon as you have that level of communication and that level of intelligence, it means this thing can understand us. It's not that alien. So I am glad that that got removed. Because that's, at this point, yeah, it is a creature, it is an alien, but it feels more like a force of nature. Agreed. So, and and from here, basically, the plot is, okay, we're going to blow up the ship, we're not going to try to capture this alien or force it out an airlock anymore. The escape pod seats three, so we're set. Let's leads to one other plot hole that kind of stuck out with me. This ship's crew is, let's see, here we have, it's actually crew like group six. It's um, uh, Ash, um, Parker, Lambert, Ripley, Dallas, um, and Kane. That's six people. Yet they only have one. And es- Brett. Yet they only have one escape pod that seats three. Yeah, there were seven people. Brett's there as oh, well. Br- I, thought, I, thought, I thought I counted him. Okay, so still, if you only have one escape pod that seats three. There are going to be some awkward decisions being made in, in the event of an emergency. Yeah, and that's... I mean, when you have a company that would rather bring this alien back than keep the crew, it may just be that there aren't enough escape pods. That is something, if you go back historically, the Titanic is not the only ship that left dock without enough escape pods for everyone they expected to be on board, or enough escape boats. So it is a problem, but it is one that has historical precedent in the real world. So that didn't bother me as much. Mm. I mean, even if you look at the normal airlines, how many commercial flyers? If there's something wrong in the air, you know, there's if you got a 200 seater airplane, you don't have enough parachutes for 200 people plus crew. You've got the flotation device under your seat, which is great if you go down over water. So that, yeah, it does seem short-sighted a little bit, especially on a ship this size. You wouldn't think it would be hard to have a second or third shuttle. 
But that one didn't bother me as much. That one I can see where it would have come out. Alright, so they set the self-destruct system and, well, they prepare and set up the self-destruct system and this is when um, Lambert and this is where uh, Veronica Cartwright and um, and the Afikoto bite it as well. And their deaths are complete, based completely off camera. We, however, we hear them in gr- almost gruesome detail. And it actually makes probably makes them the most effective um, deaths of characters that are killed by the alien in the movie, just because mm-hmm. almost literally everything is left the imagination here. Yeah, and it's also one of the few that. That's the one that feels like he's more attacking in self-defense, whereas the rest of the time this alien, it is going through its life cycle. It just feeds. This is the first one where I feel it understands these things are trying to hurt it, so now it's going to hurt them for the sake of hurting them. And that, again, if we go back to that first sequence where we find out, you know, it was basically nesting and using them to feed some offspring and setting up new eggs... Well, at this point in the director's cut, Ripley had torched that, so that's gone. I actually knew that um, that. Oh, she had. Uh, no, she hadn't. Um, that scene is edited okay. in after the self-destruct sequence has started. Um, she doesn't start the okay. self-destruct sequence until after um, uh, Parker and Lambert's death. Deaths. Okay. Yeah, so I must have mislaid it. You can tell where it has been cut from. There is a sequence where, you know, she goes down one ladder agitated and comes up another ladder significantly more agitated in the theatrical cut. So if you have the theatrical cut, that's where that scene goes. That's It's not inconsistent acting. She was acting as though there was another experience that freaked her out more in between those two shots. So that's a case where editing makes it look like inconsistent acting, which actually worked out well for the franchise because that scene doesn't mesh well with the sequels. Mm-hmm. It, yeah, it is a very different life cycle. But yeah, at this point, it's down to just Ripley, the cat, and the alien. So, yeah, the sucker is out there, and it's gunning for them. Yeah, so Ripley gets on the shuttle basically at the last minute, um, and gets out and manages to escape the the Nostromo right before it blows up in a spectacular nuclear explosion. And originally, for um, the shooting script, this was actually the end of the movie. Um, the Nostromo, uh, the uh, Narcissus, which is the shuttlecraft, flies away. Um, we see the big explosion. Ripley's like, I got you, and records the final log entry. However, Ridley Scott went, no, we need a real payoff here. We don't actually see the alien defeated. Um, so he pushed the studio to get more, a little more time, a little more budget to shoot the scene in the Narcissus with Ripley prepping for, um, to go into hypersleep and then discovering that the alien is on board. Yeah. And again, that is quite the discovery because just the way they designed the ships and the way they designed the alien's head, it looks like a part of the ship until it reaches out. So this is one that can really throw you the first time you're watching. 
because it just comes out of nowhere. Again, another one of the effective scares, but one that makes sense. It doesn't feel like a cheap scare. It feels like this is a predator who knows how to hunt and is very, very good at it. It's just using camouflage like so many predators in nature do. And we get the sequence, and again we see the strength of Ripley's character. In 1979, to have the sole survivor be a female character is a step forward in its own right. This, as far as this goes, there's actually, you know, very little sexism, and they are being treated as equals as far as their rank is concerned. Right? It's not, when you see Dallas overriding Ripley and things like that, it's not the, he's a man, she's a woman, it's he's the captain, she's third officer. It, it does feel more, here's that regimented command structure, and that's where things are coming into play. As soon as those two are down, people are looking to Ripley, but you get the feel they'd be looking to her anyway, just because she has that strength of character. Here, she's trapped in her escape pod. This thing is in there with her. And she finds a way to beat it. She outthinks this thing because she can't outfight it. Yeah. This scene is also the first scene where we really get the best look at the alien in all its, in, in the full detail. We've gotten glimpses of the tail. Um, particularly when it attack when Lambert is killed. We've gotten several earlier shots of the mouth and the inner mouth. However, um, we get an even more prolonged look at it. And it's kind of particularly notable because one of the problems that lots of horror and science fiction monster movies have had in the past before Alien came out is that by the time you got the big shot of the monster, the monster doesn't hold up. Um, there's the, the joke uh, from uh, it was a Bill Cosby routine where he's talking about going to see a monster movie and always being disappointed by the end where you see the zippers and that sort of thing. And here, mm-hmm. it you don't see the zippers, the, the, the monster design and the, both in terms of the sculpt of the suit and just the general design overall, is absolutely terrifying. It is the only way you even really know this is a guy in the suit and not animatronics is because the animatronic technology wasn't there at the time. Yeah. It even largely wasn't there by the time they made Aliens. Oddly enough, one of the last films to use an animatronic creature, what, which was Mortal Kombat in 1995, that was the first movie that had an animatronic creature that can walk on its own. That's Goro was the first animatronic that could walk. Everything else is being hauled around including the Queen Alien in Aliens. That thing was on a, on a dolly or on rolling carts the whole time. We see its leg move, its legs move, but it wasn't supporting itself in those scenes. Mm-hmm. So, but this, the only way you know it's a, a person in a suit is because that's the only technology that could get this active and this mobile at the time. And I really... Even watching it now and knowing that, I couldn't tell you where the eye holes are that the actor is using to look out. I can't find the breathing holes. Even the arms, I'm not sure how much of those fingers are sort of pneumatic and levered extensions and how much of the actual hands. The seams in the human form inside are not clear at all. Yeah, this, I don't recall if Alien was 
nominated for any visual effects awards at the Academy Awards for that year. But if it didn't, it sh- should have. Yeah, I believe it was nominated. I think the only one it won was the Art Direction Award, which was shared by Giger and the other two members of the team, which is nice because Giger didn't get art directing credits because he wasn't a part of the union, but they were fighting the union and got his name on the awards themselves. So when it came time for the Oscar ballot, they got his name on the ballot. Mm. Well, I'm, I'm very glad he got nominated. Very glad they got the award. All right. Yeah, so it won for... Um, Okay, actually, it was visual effects that it, I just double checked. It was vi- it won visual effects, was nominated for best art direction. Um, okay. And it also won uh, various other awards as well um, from various more notable organizations. It won a ba- it won a, actually the alien costume won a helped get the movie a BAFTA for best costume design. So. Yeah, and it deserves it. Like I said, it's you know you can't see the holes. Indeed, and that's something. I mean, I remember being four years old watching Sesame Street and could tell what Big Bird was looking out of. You you can't see that here, even watching it now. And a lot of that is because of the cinematography and the lighting. They are extremely careful with the lighting, so they know which parts of the alien are going to be visible, which parts are going are not going to be visible. You actually feel as though you see more of this thing than you do because they keep it shadowed for so much of it. The only thing that's consistently well lit is the mouth with those shining metal teeth. Yeah. Everything else fades in and out even through the course of one scene. So this, it's, I mean, overall... This is an exceptionally well done movie. I'm not a huge fan of the horror genre. This is one of the exceptions. This is the one, one of the ones I sought out to pick up. And that's not even true of all of the sequels. In fact, of the, with the four movies that we have in this series, I bought all four on DVD when they came out fairly early on, the first time they released anamorphically, mostly because you know, I, I found a copy that was mislabeled with a VHS price tag, and they said, no, the policy, I brought it in just to correct it. They said, nope, policy is you get it at that price if you want it. So I'd buy the DVD set at the VHS price, no question. <laughs> but it's it's only the first two that I've been tempted to upgrade to Blu-ray. Um, I got the, um, when I got the Alien Quadrology set, I got it from like a DVD, like a old DVD clearance place, which was liquidating old stock from vi- closing video stores and stuff, and it's basically, this is a beat-up copy from a sun co- from a closing Suncoast that I got for dirt cheap, and I only upgraded to the uh, Blu-ray release because, um, well, I wanted to see, like, Alien and stuff in Blu-ray, and also, Blu-ray releases tend to be physically smaller on the shelf than, uh, than DVD releases are. Oh, that is true. Um... It's one of the reasons I'm migrating to iTunes. I've got it takes a lot less space for a three terabyte external hard drive than it does for as much as many DVDs and Blu-rays as I've got on it. Yeah, it is true. Um, but yeah, this is what makes this so particularly impressive. This movie is this is Ridley Scott's second film. His first movie was The Duelist, which was a period basically um, I don't know if I call it a swashbuckler, but uh, um, it's kind of a western but with swords. Um, and over this film is his first science fiction film, 
I really took that same attention to detail and visual anal retentiveness that um, from the Duelist and applied it here, and it led to a world which really, really looks like a living, breathing world. And I'd actually say Alien gets the used future aesthetic that Star Wars and other films from the time were trying to shoot for, and achieves it far better than these other mo- than those movies um, did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and a lot of that, it's not just the look. As I said, the lighting is a huge part of it. Jerry Goldsmith's score is a huge part of it. And Jerry Goldsmith, he was a, one of the leading composers at the time. So, yeah, John Hurt was the only guy with star power. But for a lot of the major projects up to this point, if you're looking for the big composer doing the score, it was a toss-up between Jerry Goldsmith and John Williams. In fact, if you go back to the first Superman movie, all the production delays on that were the reasons they kept flipping back and forth between Jerry Goldsmith and John Williams according to their availability. You know, because at one point, John Williams was available, Jerry Goldsmith wasn't, even though Jerry Goldsmith was the first choice. Then the movie took longer and John Williams was no longer available, Jerry Goldsmith was. And then the movie took longer and Jerry Goldsmith was not available, but John Williams was. And they kept going that way, and it turns out Jerry Goldsmith was the guy that they ended up bringing in to do the Supergirl score in the 80s, because at that point, John Williams and Jerry Goldsmith were both available, but they could only afford Jerry Goldsmith. One other thing I, I almost forgot to mention earlier, uh, does bear mentioning, um, while John Hurt was the big star of this movie, he also was not the first choice to play Kane. In fact, he was actually a last-minute hiring decision. Um, the original person they had cast to play him was a British actor named John Finch, who'd been in a few movies before, uh, major movies before. He'd been in um, the Roman Polanski version of Macbeth, as Macbeth, um, Probably his biggest science fiction connect, uh, film connection since the, um, that, though. He was in the live-action adaptation of Michael Moorcock's novel, The Final Program, which is the first Jerry Cornelius novel, as Jerry Cornelius. Um, but apparently, when he was hired for the film, he did not know he was a diabetic, and he had a really bad diabetic attack on set. Um, they were shooting the scene where they'd come out of hypersleep and were trying to find out where they are. Um, the he ended up having to be hospitalized, and he was going to be out for several months. So they had to recast the last minute. So they went to one of their earlier picks, who was at the time, who, when they spoke to him before, was unavailable, John Hurt. However, Hurt was available now, and they got him in there. So while John Hurt does an excellent job here, I wouldn't mind taking a look at the alternate un- if I could get a peek at the alternate universe where um, John Finch played um, Kane and see how things played out there. Yeah, that would have been a, a different film, at least largely at first. It's Kane is an important part of the film, but he's important as the first victim. Right, it would have had almost no impact on the last three quarters of the movie. It just would have had a, a different tone and a different dynamic in the early characters, and it's surprising how much difference that can make. Um, I mean, probably the most extreme example I've seen. Go back to the pilot episode of the Dick Van Dyke Show. If you get the new deluxe sets on DVD or Blu-ray, 
They've got the original pilot before they cast Dick Van Dyke and before they renamed the series. And you look at that pilot with or without Dick Van Dyke from identical scripts with the same supporting cast, it's two different shows. One failed, one succeeds. And it's just the actor and the dynamic that they can have setting up. In, indeed. And we'll probably talk about this more with some of the other movies we come to later, um, where there are some significant actors who hadn't gotten big yet, who, who um, interviewed and, and were considered to be cast for some of these roles, and who went on to completely different things later. Like, I'll definitely, if I'm on the podcast for Star Wars, I'll definitely bring that up for there, because Kurt Russell, before he'd met John Carpenter, was uh, auditioned to play Han Solo. Yeah, and uh, Carrie Fisher was not actually cast as uh, Princess Leia initially. It was Sissy Spacek, and Sissy, and Carrie Fisher was cast in Carrie, and Fisher refused to do the nude scene. She wasn't comfortable with it. She compared notes with Sissy Spacek, so they traded roles and got the studio's approval. So there are some changes. I mean, that conversation is probably going to be longest when you get to the Ghostbusters podcast. But yeah. Yeah, there's there's a lot of that coming, and it, it's, it's interesting to see how different casting choices can completely change the film. In this case, they did quite well especially since so many of these guys were unknown, but I mean, this movie really launched Sigourney Weaver's career properly as it is now, but it wouldn't really have launched Veronica Cartwright's or Tom Skerritt's or Ian Holmes careers. These guys have solid careers because they do the job. Well, these guys are actors and they know how to work with other actors. And that's a big part of it. You see a lot of people who are known for, for good roles that's because they're scene stealers and they're not working with the cast. Some people are looking to make themselves look good. These guys are more like the Second City training where you just worry about making everybody else look good. I mean, that's the top thing on everyone's mind is making all the other people look good. Everybody looks good. And that's what we get here. Everyone's in there acting to support each other. Agreed. And pretty notable in the case of Gordon Weaver because, again, this is her first movie, and so she was looking for a lot of advice... Um, during shooting and stuff, from the people who'd been doing this longer. People like Yafit Koto and John Hurt and Tom Skerritt um, to kind of help her find the ropes and it shows and it's led, it's led to her having an incredibly fruitful career. I mean, if I was thinking about one actress who's, been, who's we're going to be talking about a bunch in future podcasts, it would be Sigourney Weaver. Uh, between the Alien franchise and Ghostbusters and Galaxy Quest, um, probably the only first people who'll be on here more would be the Star Trek cast. And that's because most, of the, basically, almost all of the Star Trek movies were at the very least in the qualifying round, even if they didn't advance to the round of 42. Yeah, and we'll be talking a fair bit about Harrison Ford, partly for Blade Runner and the Star Wars movies. And also because, you know, in addition to the TV tournament that's still coming and is going to be announced in more detail very shortly, if it hasn't already, we're recording this in advance. Specifically, we're recording it on Sightmaster Dave Smith's birthday, so see if you can figure that one out. Um, but when we get to the fantasy film podcast series, I would be stunned if we don't see at least three out of four Indiana Jones movies make that cut. 
Yeah. And it'll also probably be upping the total amount of Arnold in the tournament as well. Between Terminator, between the Terminator films we have here and the Conan films will probably show up there. Yeah. Okay, so that's a lot to listen for in the future. But I think at least that wraps up everything I had to say about Alien. Did you have any other closing words to add? Well, the last thing we need to bring up is talking about where Alien fell in the tournament bracket. Um, it almost made it to the uh, semifinal round. Um, I it was, let's see, maybe maybe quarterfinal made it, not quarterfinal. Um, but it made it up to going up against the Matrix after beating um, Avatar, the um, anime version of Metropolis, and Iron Man before finally losing to the Matrix. And I think that's fair. I I could, I could see the, the Alien versus the Matrix having gone both ways, um, but it was a period... Though the Matrix appeared to win fairly clean cut. It did. And that's one thing about the Bureau 42 readers. Uh, Firefly, the Matrix, and Battlestar Galactica are very well represented amongst our readership and those fans. And deservedly so. But they do tend to do pretty well. And I think if we're judging things on a science fiction tournament, the Matrix is closer to hard sci-fi than this is. It's definitely science fiction. It definitely spawned a sci-fi franchise. But if you look at the movies made since and how much influence it's had, Alien had some influence on the horror genre, but not so much on the science fiction genre, at least not in comparison to The Matrix, which has had clear impacts on other genres. And I know a lot of people chalk it up to you know, X-Men, Blade, and Sam Raimi's Spider-Man, I think the Matrix had just as much to do with launching the the superhero wave that we have coming through. It just wasn't based on a comic book. It was an original superhero created by comic book fans. I agree. Alien's probably biggest influence was, to a certain degree, in the wave of alien imitator films that we got. Films like Creature and Roger Corman's own Planet of Terror, which um, brings us back to James Cameron, who um, did production design on that. Um, but yeah we'll be talking about James Cameron a lot more when we talk about aliens indeed so I think that covers all the bases okay so thank you for listening that wraps up the latest ep- episode in the greatest science fiction film tournament podcasts and keep listening throughout the month of October for other podcasts about the horror entries in the science fiction genre. So, and again, Alex, thank you for joining us as co-host on this podcast. I'm glad to be here.